This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm Paul Newton. I'm director of the uh, Cambridge Assessment Network Division, which brings you these events. Uh, and you're attending the first in our Perspectives from Cambridge Assessment uh, series of this year. And perspectives from Cambridge Assessment is where you get to hear about the cutting-edge research that's being done in this very organisation. Um, we're privileged today to welcome three speakers from Cambridge Assessment, Carmen Vidal, <laughs> Sylvia Green and Tim Oates. Um, Tim is the uh, Group Director of Assessment Research and Development. Um, Carmen is a Senior Research Officer uh, in the Research Division and Sylvia is the Head of the Research Division. And uh, we're going to be talking today on the effects of modularisation, uh, which is the title of a, a report that was published uh, in the middle of last year and which you can find on our website. Uh, so I'm going to ho- hand over now to uh, the three speakers. And I think we're going to be in the order Tim and then Sylvia and then Carmen. OK, thanks very much. Thanks very much, Paul. Yes, and welcome, everybody. Um, it's with great pleasure that I introduce um, Carmen and Sylvia Uh, to go through the detail of the outcomes of this inquiry. Um, Not least because um, it's politically highly relevant to some of the discourses which are being held at the moment about the form of public examinations, but also because some of the detailed analysis has been long overdue um, in terms of the effect of modularity on such things as outcomes, motivation and workload. Um, What I've been asked to do is is not only briefly introduce the session, but also to run through some of the history of how we got here. And and the history is indeed quite interesting. And then also link it to the current political debate. Where where on earth did modularisation actually come from? How did we get to where we are today? And it's a very important question, because many of those steps we kind of take for granted or are not aware of. And really, the origins of modularisation in the English tradition can be traced back to the states, and to the states in respect of emerging problems in its high school, higher education linkage during the 1950s and 1960s. Because there they were confronting the issue of geographical mobility of students around the system. Um, And that was much more prevalent. The population was much more mobile in the US than in many nations because of the Great Depression, because of the flexibility of labour markets and because of immigration. And there was a real problem that there was no federal education system. So people would be moving from one state to another. They would have done prior learning and it would have been certificated within institutions, within states, often certificated indeed very locally. And then there was a question of how this would be recognised somewhere else. So the whole issue of credit became established. How you can describe courses in forms of credits outcomes and give them some kind of grade recognition which could then transfer. Initially a quite crude proxy emerged which was we'll give everybody whatever they've done at whatever college grade or high school grade a C. Obviously that was not sensitive enough to what people had done. So the idea of beginning to describe packages of units took off, and then that fed back into curriculum development, and modularisation of provision began to emerge. Now that was brought over to this country really through the interest of the uh, polytechnic sector and the then CNAA, the Council for National Academic Awards. Now they were very interested, interestingly enough, in leverage, in control, They wanted to increase the quality of the polytechnic's offerings. And one of the things that they thought they could do to raise standards in the polytechnic sector was to introduce more uniform curriculum development and to standardise the curriculum development approaches. And one of the instruments that they decided to adopt, driven by credit, was modularisation. So if you can begin to describe units in the form of... Sorry, sorry, courses in the form of components and to begin to standardise the process by which they're described, then you can, from the centre, control the curriculum development and the content with greater precision. So there's a strong control element associated with it. And that was during the 1960s. Now, that was spotted by the vocational bodies, 
who saw within modularisation some benefits as it had been implemented in the polytechnic sector. And those benefits were essentially associated with flexibility. But there was this subtext of control associated with improvement of quality. And the Manpower Services Commission, um, in implementing the new training initiative, saw modularisation of provision as being one way of of improving the quality of vocational offerings and, again, standardising content. That was picked up by NCVQ, who worked on unit-based qualifications, and there, modularisation became very associated with stating things in the form of outcomes. And that unit-based orthodoxy was very, very closely linked with the outcomes movement in respect of qualifications-led transformation of vocational education and training. Uh, in the great merger of um, 1997, i.e. SCAR and NCVQ, to form QCA, there were, there were kind of horse trading in terms of dominance. Now, whilst certain academic orthodoxies came to dominate the vocational sector, certain bits of the form of vocational qualifications were taken over into the academic. The use of the term module was not taken over, but the use of the term unit was. These were units of outcomes, not modules of learning. A very important distinction. But it was the term units which became came established in the AS and A-level innovation of Curriculum 2000. Okay, so just a couple more points on this. So flexibility was seen as one of the key benefits, that you can combine modules, units, in different ways to form different qualifications. So in the NVQ system, the same unit could appear at different levels in the qualification system in different levels because those units could be combined to reflect the nature of competence in different occupations. So dental receptionists do reception work. So units from reception work in other sectors could be imported. Commonality, economy, credit transfer, flexibility. Flexibility would also be manifested because people could start learning, get some credit, stop and do something else, then start again. And, of course, that was one feature of the OU. The Open University curriculum model was units, which you achieved flexibly in terms of your own time. You could stop learning and restart, and you wouldn't lose your credit. One thing about the NVQ units is they were supposed to be independent of the mode duration and location of learning. So it was a competence which mattered, something which was grossly overstated in terms of its benefits and which eroded the importance of the forms of learning, something which I've written extensively about. Now, in Curriculum 2000, actually manifesting itself in AS modularisation, not GCSE modularisation, the benefits were seen in terms of ensuring better articulation between the vocational and the academic and organising the internal structure of subjects in a rational way. But there, there were insidious effects of this. Although putative benefits in terms of transparency, putative benefits in terms of flexibility, a, a, dividing the A-level into two, two levels, what we've seen are issues around increasing the amount, just the bulk of assessment. Basically, modularise something, you almost inevitably get an increase in assessment, if you modularise things, then you tend to increase the cost. And certainly one of the, one of the, one of the key things which we're worried about is the atomism in the description of a domain, which then results. You tend to get more atomistic assessment, more disaggregated description of a domain. And finally, the thing which politicians have focused on recently, you get gaming in terms of re-entry, resets, and combinations. And, and that's really what Carmen and colleagues' work has focused upon. Um, what, what are the insidious effects in terms of student outcomes, motivation, and workload? What are the tangible benefits? What are the system deficits? Um, I spoke with a senior official about GCHC. I said, why are we modularising everything? And he said, frankly, I don't know. It just seems to be the fashion at the moment. Now, it's into that kind of drift of the system towards modularisation, 
with everybody taking the advantages for granted and, and being somewhat blind to the accumulating problems that this research sets. It actually illuminates the nature of the problems and the nature of the benefits. And really, through very, very focused analysis, has blown a hole in quite a few people's assumptions about what's actually going on. So in order to hear the detail, I now hand over to Sylvia and to Carmen. Thanks, Tim. Um, welcome, everyone. Thanks for coming and joining us this afternoon. Um, this was a really interesting piece of work. We do have a full report on this. We're giving you a flavour of it this afternoon, and I hope you'll find it of interest. We hope to have lots of discussion towards the end. I'm going to give you some of the background, look at what we were trying to do and how we were trying to do it, and then Carmen's going to give you the best bit, which is actually what did we find out. So I'll be handing over to Carmen fairly shortly for her to do that. So the background, and for many of you will know this, to you I apologise, but there will be those who don't. So we'll think about um, the 14 to 19 review um, published in 2004, when the national regulator in England um, revised the subject criteria for GCSE specifications, examinations. And at the time of that review, the UK awarding bodies took the opportunity to increase the number of unitised specifications at GCSE. But up to 2008, modular GCSEs had been confined to English, ICT, mathematics and science subjects since September 2008, 2009, sorry, all GCSEs are modular, meaning um, that they are more in line with the A-level form of assessment and of course the A-levels have been modular for considerably longer. Again, for those who aren't au fait with it, the modular specification is one in which the content is divided into units or modules, and each of which can be examined separately. So the module examinations can be taken in different sessions, for example, in January, in March, in June. And any or all the modules may be retaken, with the highest mark being retained. So that's the kind of background to it. However, the new GCSE criteria state that only one resit can be taken um, for each unit. So the idea that people can just keep on resitting, resitting, resitting a particular unit is actually not the case. Um, and 40% of the assessment um, has to be taken in the terminal session. So there is a terminal rule. So that's the kind of setup that we have in relation to GCSE. There have been many stories printed in various um, newspapers and magazines, etc., and articles, that modularisation leads to a dumbing down. It leads to um, a less demanding form of assessment. Um, and this could lead to a decrease in the amount of trust that people have in those qualifications. So it was into that context that we wanted to um, have a look and find out what was actually going on. And that was the genesis, if you like, of this research. Um, and the details of the um, background can be seen here. The idea that the GCSEs were claimed to be um, less demanding, I think, is one of the more serious considerations that we had to think about. The idea that because you took them in chunks of learning, followed by assessment, that that somehow meant that the learning and the assessments was in some way um, less demanding on the student, on the teacher, and so on, which is why we've got this idea of workload uh, as part of uh, this research. Okay, let's look at the debate then. The debate that's going, been going on since the introduction of these, uh, this modularisation. And I'll take you first through some of the professed advantages of the modular assessment uh, form. Um, there have been a number of studies, and for those of you who are interested, these are referenced in the report, which Carmen will give you the link to that at the end of the session. Uh, and these are some of the, the comments and the suggestions that are made. The idea that assessment can be timed 
to match the point of learning. So that's put forward as an advantage. You actually are assessed closer to the point of learning. But the student can reset um, one unit. They don't have to take the whole thing again. They can take retake a unit, which means they can focus on that. And that's put forward again as an advantage for the student uh, in the assessment process. Thank you, Carmen. Modular feedback. Now, feedback is a really big issue um, in this uh, dialogue that's going on. That the frequency of feedback, given the modularity of the assessment and the learning chunks, if you like, enables students to remediate their weaknesses, to actually work on what they need to work on and identify what they need to work on um, in shorter bursts, if you like, and that that may make it more accessible to them and make it uh, more meaningful for them and give them an opportunity to succeed. That's another argument that we have. Students, um, it has been said in some studies, are better motivated when they get the feedback because they get it more frequently and it acts as a kind of spur to them to continue uh, with their own study and looking at what they need to do in their own learning. So motivation there is, is important. It's also been suggested it's easier for them to prepare for their own assessments because it's in this, in this modular way. And the assessment load itself is spread, so it's not an all-or-nothing um, assessment situation. It's said that because of that, that the stress reduces, and we'll be talking about that and showing you our findings on that later on, and that revision is more manageable, and perhaps we can, that's a logical suggestion, I think. It's a more manageable revision process. And another one is a sense of ownership. It has been suggested that students are less disaffected because they um, take a sense of ownership for it along the route rather than feeling that they're disengaged from the assessment until they get to the end of the course. So these are some of the uh, suggested advantages of modularisation in, in some of the studies that have been done. Thank you, Carmen. So on the disadvantages that have been suggested, um, critics of modularisation would suggest that there's a danger here, and Tim alluded to this, the fragmentation of um, the learning, the learning itself becoming um, too fragmented and lacking coherence through the learning process. So that is suggested as being a disadvantage. Um, the other one, another one is the poorly developed overview of the subjects and the idea that there are discrete areas but there isn't a coherent uh, piece in its entirety. So again, that's to do with the uh, fragmentation. That assessment dominates. That if assessment is happening regularly throughout a two-year course, then it becomes a focus and it takes a lot of time, which is why we've also had a look at some of the teacher perceptions um, of the modular process because, of course, they're engaged in the assessment process along with their students um, and that kind of ongoing assessment can be very demanding on teachers. Deadlines, of course, because if you're working in units and you're being assessed in units, then you've got more deadlines along the way. And deadlines can impinge on the teaching and the teacher's ability to take control of the teaching because they're always looking at the next deadline as they go through. A big issue is maturity, the idea that um, it is possible that students are being entered for examinations before they are really ready to take them. Now, there could be some gaming going on. They could be per perceiving these um, assessments in different ways. And again, Carmen will be explaining to you some of that later. But this idea of the maturity of the student is a serious point to be made. And, of course, the idea of short-term targets dominating rather than longer-term goals and the danger of the cram and discard um, rather than the deeper, more meaningful learning that we would want. 
And of course, as I said, if, if resits aren't managed well, they really can put a great deal of pressure on the school's resources. If you, if you think through what is um, needed for these resits, even logistically to be taken, then there are some issues around that, which um, how it's been suggested create a lot of pressure, not only on the students, but on the schools as well. These are some of the areas that we've been looking at in this study. So the aim of our research um, is to explore the differences in outcomes, in motivation and workload for the candidates who take these GCSE subjects in a terminal or linear approach, all the units at the end, and those who adopt a modular approach to this and take the units in different sessions throughout the two-year course. Only it's not always as simple as that, as we'll go on to explain. That distinction is not the only distinction because they can be taken in a range of ways, um, as we'll be explaining when we look at the structure of some of these uh, courses. So the research is particularly addressing whether there are different outcomes. So what's happening between these two groups of students who are approaching these assessments in the two different uh, ways? Whether the students are at a disadvantage um, by their maturity? Or looking at it another way, do they have a narrower experience of the subject when they take it earlier? And whether students are benefiting from being able to resit? So are they resitting and resitting and resitting until everybody gets an A. You know, there are some questions around that. What about the feedback? Does it motivate? Does it really motivate the students? And more importantly, I think, does it help them to identify their own learning needs? Is that what the feedback does? A lot is said about the motivation of the students, and we've been looking at what that really means in practice. What are the characteristics of that motivation? And what's the influence on workload? And as I said earlier, what about the teachers? What are they saying about modularisation? What are their experiences of it? They're the people who are there, cutting, cutting edge, you know, delivering these uh, qualifications. So... They were the aims. So how did we go about it? Well, we took two GCSE subjects, um, contrasting subjects, English and maths. And the examination data in both subjects, both at specification and unit level, was obtained from the OCR awarding body. So thank you to colleagues in OCR for allowing us access to that. Now, for the students of English... We looked at six cohorts. Um, the unitised GCSE for mathematics specification was only certificated in 2008. So we were only had two cohorts for that subject. So we didn't have as much there uh, in the analysis. We had a mixed method approach. We had quantitative and qualitative uh, methods to look at the research questions that I've just outlined to you. The, the quantitative strand involved um, descriptive statistics where we investigated the entry patterns for the routes and we used regression analyses to explain the differences in attainment between the linear and the modular routes once the general ability of the candidates had been taken into account. Um, and that was measured by their prior or concurrent attainment at school. So we took that into account and then we compared the two, uh, two types of assessment routes. In this quantitative strand, all of the um, data comprised the students' assessment details and that included the session, the unit marks and the overall grades. So that was the, the data we were looking at. And then we had a qualitative strand of the research and in that we were looking at questionnaires and face-to-face -face interviews so we were supporting the the, uh, the 
quantitative data with a qualitative aspect. The face-to-face interviews um, with the students were carried out to collect the data on motivation and workload, as were the questionnaires. So that was the focus there. Um, And in this qualitative strand, we had 62 students of English, all in one school, and 61 students of mathematics who were taken from two different schools, and they took part in that strand of the work. Now, in order for to make Carmen's job a little easier, I'm going to talk a little bit about the structure of the qualifications so that when Carmen talks about the findings from the research, you will have had that uh, information. So, first of all, the English. The OCR GCS English, GCSE English, was a unit-based structure, as you can see, but it could be taken in a linear or a modular form. So this is the structure of it. Units one and two are compulsory, either at foundation or at higher tier. So the first two are compulsory. One component has to be taken from either unit three or unit four, and then the unit five is the compulsory coursework element. So altogether, we have um, that kind of structure for the qualification and when Carmen presents the results that's the context in which uh, she'll be presenting the English results. Now although it's unit based as you can see it is possible as I said to follow a traditional linear route for this qualification and take all the modules in the same session at the end. So you can do it along the way or you can take it at the end and it's that contrast that we were looking, uh, looking at in relation to our qualitative and quantitative approaches. And then the maths um, GCSE for OCR. This one um, is one of the offerings from OCR and OCR offers several different GCSE uh, qualifications in mathematics. But in this one, we looked at a linear assessment and a unitised assessment. Both routes are identical in content, but they're different in structure. And you can see here, uh, and it's in the handout if, if it's difficult to see on the, uh, on the slide. Now, the linear assessment for this maths qualification consists of two tiers, foundation and higher. And in each tier, candidates have to sit two examination papers and submit coursework. So that's the linear. Two examinations and coursework. The modular course, which as I said is the same in content but different in structure, has been divided into these ten stages and they're graduated in content and level of difficulty and there is a module test for each of these stages. This table shows the, how those are uh, organised. Candidates must enter at least two different module tests from here. And most modules are available in January, in March and in June. So they have the choice of when they take them. And then the candidates have to take a terminal examination at the end. Now in this qualification, the one we we chose to look at, the modules are each worth 25% in the qualification, and the exam is 50%. And the 50% is the terminal examination. So they do have flexibility in their modules, and they have flexibility in the timing of the modules, but there are some things which are fixed. Um, And so we were looking at the difference between the linear and this modular approach. So having set all of that up for you, I'm now going to hand over to Carmen, who's going to give you some of the outcomes of the research in the context of these two qualifications. And I think it was important for us right at the outset to choose these two contrasting qualifications. And I'm sure you'll understand the reason for that when Carmen's told you the rest of the story. So thank you very much. So um, (coughs) thank you, Sylvia. Um, Well, I'm going to start trying to answer um, our first research question, um, which was, uh, are there differences in performance between uh, linear and modular candidates? 
and I'm going to present the results by subject and I'm going to start with English. So first of all, I want to talk a little bit about the entries. Um, this graph here shows the entries uh, for GCSE English from 2004, so cohort 1, to 2009, the cohort 6. And from that, you can see that um, there were more candidates entered for a linear approach than for a modular approach. Uh, in particular, um, in 2009, there was about 80% uh, of the candidates following the linear approach and just 20% following the modular one. And... Um, you can see as well that uh, the entries for the modular uh, assessment uh, are increasing slightly um, over the period of study. Um, right. In the latest cohort for um, 2009, there were 191 uh, different unit and session combinations that led to a GCSE in English. Um, so this table shows the 10 most popular ones. Uh, the ones that are highlighted in blue are linear paths and the other ones are modular paths. Um, so as you can see, taking um, four units, four units is what's needed for certification in the subject of Sylvia uh, mentioned earlier. So they, the most popular combination was taking the four um, necessary units uh, in the terminal session, June 2009. Um, but there were a reasonable percentage of students that uh, follow a linear approach but took all the the necessary units to certificate in January or even in the previous June. Um, this uh, third combination is quite interesting. I mean, two, two, almost 2.5% of the students took the necessary units to certificate in the January session, so they could have certificated, but they resubbed them all in June. Um, it should be noted that um, the most uh, frequent combinations are more likely to be... Um, reflecting teaching resources in a centre or teaching preferences rather than any other factor. I mean, um, there are some centres that seat just the most able candidates in January sessions is to um, free their time up so they can focus on other subjects towards the end of the course. Or um, there are other centres, for example, that seat all their candidates in a January session just to kind of get a feel for what's expected. What's expected. So if they like their outcomes, they stop. If not, they go and um, reset. Um, in maths, the, the pattern is somehow different. Well, we only have two years of data for this, but um, we, ha we can see that about 60% of the candidates follow a modular assessment route and 40% a linear assessment route. Um, and um, for the 2009 cohort, there were over 5,000 different unit session combinations that led to a GCSE in the subject. And again, these are just the most uh, popular ones. Um, this shows the degree of flexibility that a modular course can offer in terms of uh, when you can sit the exam and uh, how many units you can sit. As Sylvia mentioned earlier, you only need to sit two of, of these uh, modules, M1 to M10. <coughs> um, but uh, the most popular combinations, you can see that the students sat three or even four. I guess they did this to maximise the the chances of getting a good grade because you see the four modules and the, your best two grades are the ones that are going to count towards your certification. <clears throat> um, so these uh, entry patterns in both subjects just showed you um, that, uh, for example, in maths, um, modular courses seem to be more successful. And it could be because in English um, there is a factor such as maturity or parallel teaching across the modules that might um, have made students to sit all the examinations at the end. So what I'm going to do from now on is to focus just on um, one cohort of students, um, those that um, were born between September 92 and August 93, um, certificated in 2008 or 2009 sessions, taking all the units that they needed in 2008 or 2009 sessions. And these restrictions are um, in a way to uh, make an attempt to mirror a typical uh, GCSE cohort, so basically um, removing from the analysis the people that were kind of accelerated or the older candidates. Um, these graphs here present the grade distribution uh, for um, English in the January session and in the June session. Um, by assessment route. And um, I don't have the graphs for the January 2008 and June 2008 sessions because there were very few candidates certificating then. It was about 0.01% in the January 2008 and 2.5% in the June 2008. Um, what you can see that um, 
the number of candidates obtaining grades A star to C um, in January 2009 and A star to B in the June 2009 is higher among the ones that follow the linear route. Um, and uh, we also found out that the average grade for the linear route was 5.5 and for the modular route was 5, so there is an average, there is a difference of half a grade um, in favour of the linear route. And this difference was statistically significant. Um, this other graph here um, presents the, the distribution of the grades for maths. Um, just for the June 2009 session, again, there were very few uh, candidates taking um, the unitized maths and certificated in earlier sessions. And in this case, um, we found that the percentage of uh, students obtaining grades A star, C and D was higher among the ones that follow a linear route, and then for the other grades, it was higher among the students that follow a modular one. Um, the difference in this case, in the average grade for both routes were very small in favour of the modular route, and again, they were statistically significant. Um, but what happens if we, I mean, if we take into account the ability of the students? Are the students that sit uh, the linear assessments uh, more able than the ones that follow in a modular route? Um, so we, we have to take that into account. Um, so we need to know the quality um, of the entry in each of the assessment routes. So in English, um, this graph is for English, and uh, it presents the distribution of the prior attainment of the students that uh, obtain a GCSE English in January 2009 or June 2009. The light grey is for linear and the dark grey is for modular. The, case, the prior attainment was measured as the average of the case stage 3 uh, tests, maths, English and science. And as you can see, the um, candidates who uh, obtained a uh, GCSE in English following a linear route had a, a slightly higher prior attainment than uh, those following a modular route. And uh, for maths, it's basically kind of the same um, graph just for June uh, 2009. Again, um, in this case, the candidates that follow a modular route were slightly um, better in terms of their prior attainment. So when we have this information, what happens to the difference in performance at GCSE? Um, well, we basically found the same thing. The modular routes in English led to lower grades than linear routes, and in maths, the other way around. Um, students obtain higher grades in the modular route than in the linear route. So there is a contrasting um, result there between the subjects. Um, in a little bit more detail, um, this graph here shows the predicted probability of a girl in cohort 9 um, obtaining a grade A or above in English uh, by the case stage 3 uh, average score and the assessment route. So the solid line is for the linear assessment and the dashed line is for the modular assessment. And uh, um, what this graph says, basically, for example, if we get a girl that has a... Um, um, case stage 3 average score of 80, then her uh, probability of uh, getting a grade A revive would be 0.88. But if, he, if she would follow a linear route instead of a modular one, the probability would be 0.94. So there is actually a, a difference in the probability by um, assessment route. Uh, the graphs for boys, for the boys, was very similar, and uh, I'm not presenting it here, it's in the report. Um, and what happens for maths? Well, it's basically the other way around. So um, candidates that follow a linear assessment had lower probability of obtaining a grade A or above than those uh, following the linear. Um, higher probability than those following the linear assessment route. Right. So um, moving on to our second research question. So are the students at a disadvantage by their relative immaturity or narrow experience of a subject if they enter for an examination early? Well, it's been claimed that this is the case and therefore this is a disadvantage of modular specifications. So what we did was to use information about when the units were taken and the um, grade obtained in those units to investigate the issue. Um, again, I'm going to focus on this 
one cohort, the results were very similar for um, all the cohorts in the study, and you can find all the results in the report. Um, so in English, uh, there are two sessions in each year of the two-year course where students can uh, take their units. Um, for simplicity, I'm going to just follow the, this notation. So session one will be the January session in the first year, session two, the June session in the first year, and then so on. Um, so what students can do is uh, take the four units necessary to certificate in session four. So that will be a linear approach. They can take units in the uh, different sessions, and that will be a modular approach. And other thing that they could do is they could seat the four units in session two, and that will be a linear approach, but taken early. Um, we use the overall um, grade in English to compare the performance of the students who certificate early and uh, those who certificate in the last session. And what we did was just focus on a couple of grades, which were A and C. Right. This table presents the effects, and by that I mean also ratios of the session um, in each grade for the modular route. And the statistically significant effects are in red. There were very few students certificated in session one, so those were not included in the analysis. And session four is the baseline category, is the one uh, we are comparing against. So, for example, if the odds ratio for session three and grade A um, is lower than one, that means that the probability of obtaining a great day in that session is lower than in the baseline. And if this coefficient here were bigger than one, then that would mean that the probability of obtaining a great day in session three will be higher than in the baseline. So what did we found? Well, that, sitting, um, that obtaining your GCSE early in session three, that's the January session of the second year, um, students that do that have a lower probability of obtaining either a grade A or a grade C and above. Um, we look um, to the, into the interactions of gender and session, and what we found was that girls were even less likely to get um, um, a, a grade A or a grade C in session three than boys. Um, yep. then, and then we also found that there were no significant significant differences in between uh, session two and session four. And uh, so what did we find for the linear um, assessment? So what happened um, here was that students that obtained their GCSE in a linear way in January 2009, that's session three, were less likely to obtain a grade A than those that did it in the June session. And uh, students who obtained their GCSE following a linear approach in session three were more likely to get a grade C about than those uh, doing it in session four. <clears throat> Again, there were no significant differences between uh, getting your GCSE in session two or um, session four. <clears throat> so... We also look at what happened at unit level. I mean, that was the overall uh, grade. Uh, but what happened um, for each of the units? Well, students taking unit one um, early, in particular in session three, had higher probability of obtaining um, a grade A or a grade C than those sitting in the units in session four. So early assessment was an advantage for unit one. Um, Students sit in units two or three midway throughout the course in sessions two or three um, were at a disadvantage comparing to those who opted for sitting them at the end. I mean, the probability of obtaining grade A or C um, uh, in uh, sessions two or three was lower than in session four. Right. For the unit four, which I don't know if you remember, it was a coursework unit, um, submitting it early was an advantage. Submitting it either in sessions two or three, the students obtain better grades than submitting it in session four. There was no effect um, of the assessment session for unit five, so it didn't make any difference when they submitted their uh, coursework for unit five in terms of the grade they got in that unit. And at unit level, we didn't find any uh, significant difference, gender differences in the performance of the students. 
<coughs> what happens in maths? Um, well, for the modular course in maths, um, there is one extra session per year. Um, so I will follow the same notation as for English, but I include the March um, session there. And the issue of maturity was addressed differently because of the availability of the data and also because of the structure of the specification. Um, so we only look at what happened at unit level. We didn't look at what happened uh, with the overall uh, grade in maths. Um, and we are going to uh, be focusing on marks rather than in grades because, uh, as you remember, each of the modules only target a couple of grades, so we'll, we'll just be looking at the marks. Um, so this table here uh, presents um, the effects of the session uh, for each of the units. Um, um, dash in the table um, means that the students, for example, for unit two, unit two sessions one and two, uh, it means that um, students that sat unit two in sessions one or two uh, um, were likely to obtain lower marks than those um, taking the unit in the baseline uh, session, which was session six. Um, a plus in the table uh, means that um, the students, for example, for unit eight, um, taking the unit in sessions one or four, um, were likely to obtain higher marks than those that sat in unit eight in session six. Um, here, when we have this G in brackets, this means that the effect was only uh, significant for girls. So girls were uh, less, I mean, were less likely to obtain better grades in session five than session six. Um, but for boys, there were no differences. So in general, what you can see from this table, oh well, when there is no um, symbol in the line, it means that there were really no differences in when the unit was sat in terms of the outcomes. So what you can see when you look at this table is that there are many more pluses than dashes. So early assessment in maths seems to be, in general, um, an advantage. Because um, in most of the cases, if there is an advantage, or it doesn't really matter uh, when you sit your units. So it's, um, it's a, there's, again, a contrasting uh, result with English. Um, so what, what happened... Um, in terms of um, students benefiting from the sitting modules. As Sylvia mentioned at the beginning, well, uh, in a modular GCC, students can reseat each unit once, and the best result um, normally uh, maintains or improves grade outcomes. Um, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail um, in this particular issue. The reason for this is that when we... Uh, started to work on this aspect of modularization, we realized that it was um, quite complex and that probably required a more comprehensive um, research than uh, we were pursuing at this time. And uh, we thought it would be a good idea to carry out um, another research project just focusing on resets um, and doing do that at GCSE and at A level. Um, this research is actually in progress and... Um, colleagues in the research division and working on it. Um, they are um, looking into the impact of the, of the receipts and the grades, um, how um, receipts can affect future performance at A level. They're also carrying out surveys in order to find out um, the reasons for resitting and uh, students' views and experiences of, of resitting. So um, it's going to be a quite comprehensive res research on resitting. And today... I'm just going to very briefly say what uh, we found in uh, not so much in-depth uh, look at resitting. Um, so what we found was that over the period of a study, the percentage of students taking resits in English uh, and maths increased. In general, the students who resat uh, modules were weaker than those who didn't. Um, in all the units that we look at, uh, the majority of the students did better on the second attempt than on the first. That's not really surprising. But this doesn't mean that they improve their unit grade or their overall grade. In fact, sorry, the percentages of students that improve their unit grades as a result of a receipt range from 25% to 60%. That depended on the subject of the unit. I mean, there's lots of tables in the report where you can actually look at all this. Um, and um, some of the interview students um, 
said that the possibility of the receipt relieve some of the stress and pressure that they feel when they are sitting in the exams. And uh, some students actually admitted that they would have worked harder if they didn't have the possibility of resitting. Um, so there is uh, a lot more about resitting in the research and then um, um, we will have the results of this other project. Um, The results I'm going to be um, showing you from this point onwards are from the qualitative strand of the research. So in terms of the impact of the feedback on the students' motivation, um, we found that um, students appreciated seeing their grades and receiving the feedback from the module exams. And they found actually this feedback quite motivating. Uh, they like to be informed about their performance. Um, they said that they were motivated even by their negative feedback. I mean, if they got a bad grade, well, that motivated them to do better in the next modules. And um, this, um, here are some quotes from, from the students. Who some, one student said that, say you have done worse than you expect. For me, it motivates me to revise more, push myself further, and ask for more help. Um, this other one said, I'm kind of more motivated because I obviously need to be for the university I want to go to, so I'm going to have to revise to get a B, whereas before I didn't really bother. Um, another aspect relating to the feedback that we were interested in it was if, if this feedback helped them to identify their learning needs, the areas they needed to improve on. Um, well, the research actually shows that the feedback only in the form of grade reports um, does not inform students' learning needs or advising them on learning strategies. Um, one teacher that um, was interviewed said that actually having a breakdown of the marks on assessment objectives would be a more useful tool than just a grade report to discuss with students um, their strengths and weaknesses. The students' comments um, suggest that um, it was easier for the maths students to identify their, their, their strengths and their weaknesses than for students of English. Um, this was probably because the maths modules are more concise and, um, and distinct in terms of the um, content and on the skills you need for them. Um, so again, there were some differences between the subjects. Um, this um, comment... Um, uh, just uh, reflect how the students felt about the feedback. So uh, one of the students was asked if he knew the mistakes on the paper and said, not really. It might be because I didn't use enough quotations or I went on too much about one point instead of carrying on about different points. Um, so the interview continued like that. So you don't actually know what your mistakes were? No, not really. Do you think that it would be useful to know them? Yes, so then I could improve so I wouldn't make them again it would help me to understand where I went wrong and what I could do to improve the grade. Um, these are some other uh, comments. I'll just leave you to read that. Um, so, um, how can feedback be improved so it's helpful for students? Well, these are some suggestions that we pick up in the interviews. So first of all, the students would like to receive like, more detailed and personalised feedback, not just uh, grade reports. Um, they would like to receive their marked papers sooner. Although they receive the marked papers, um, these arrive usually quite late um, after the examination to be useful. Uh, one of the teachers um, actually said that um, when the marked papers arrive, they are well into teaching the literature. That was an English teacher. So they were into teaching the literature, and at that point, they don't feel that it's worth to go and have a look at the marked. Uh, papers. Um, the students also said that they would like the opportunity of going through the papers, to the mark papers with their teachers and receiving uh, suggestions from the teachers about the areas they need to improve on. Um, this is in line with having like a more personalised feedback. Um, the best advice, according to some students of maths, will be the feedback uh, that they could receive from the teachers who could discuss the common mistakes that... Uh, with the whole class, and then make the students reflect on their own responses in the paper. So, um, other area that we look at, um, 
was uh, um, students' motivation. And these graphs here uh, present the characteristics of um, students' motivation for students taking uh, one unit of English in January of nine and one unit of, March, of maths in March 2009. Um, the uh, motivation was measured by an adapted version of um, uh, intrinsic motivation inventory, which um, has six different subscales choice, competence, effort, enjoyment, pressure, and value. These are uh, different aspects of um, test-taking motivation. And um, what we found was um, for both subjects, um, the highest scores um, were in the value um, subscale. And this indicates that the students actually perceive their modules, uh, the modular exams to be quite valuable, and they internalize their aims and their objectives. Uh, for maths, the Next, um, the most highly rated um, scale, well, the second highly rated scale was pressure, which indicates the students felt quite a lot of stress when sitting the, um, the exam. For English, um, the second highest scores were in um, effort. And it's interesting that uh, choice, competence and enjoyment, which are like the positive aspects of motivation, actually got lower scores than um, pressure or effort. Um, this means that actually the students are not really intrinsically motivated. They perceive the exam like an externally imposed um, compulsory task. Um. <clears throat> right. We also look at workload. I mean, I'm visiting all the topics very briefly um, so that you get a, a flavour of all the aspects we look at, but uh, there's a lot of more, there's a lot more in, in the report if you are particularly interested in one of the areas. Um, so, uh, workload, yeah. Um, this was investigated using self-report workload charts that the students completed uh, throughout the uh, academic year and also um, we did some interviews uh, to gather some extra data. So, uh, this is uh, the workload levels for uh, mathematics students from early September to early March. Um, and uh, for the uh, linear routes, you see that uh, the workload, uh, well, they didn't have any exams uh, from September to March, just, uh, they were just uh, studying the subject. Um, so the workload varied from uh, low to um, medium and raised steadily. Um, for the modular students, the pattern is quite different. Uh, it goes up to very high in January and high in March, which is when um, they, they sit module exams. The interviews with the students um, support these uh, findings and they, you can find all comments, lots of comments from students in the report. In English, the patterns uh, for both linear and modular um, assessment routes were fairly similar. Um, this graph shows you the workload from September to January um, and the workload rates uh, more or less equally for both um, assessment routes and it went from low in September to um, high, fairly high in January, which is when most of the students that took part in this research sat their um, module exams or um, linear exams. Um, in terms of workload, well, the research found as well that uh, sitting in the modular, the modular exam uh, didn't really help with the workload that they experience uh, at the end of the year. But many of the students said that the possibility of resitting did uh, relieve the stress of the modular exams. Um, and these are some comments. Um, for example, one student of English said that it takes the pressure away a bit. Of course, you know, if you don't do well, then you have another chance. Um, student of math says, if I couldn't receive them, I would most probably work myself silly trying to get as good as I can get. Um, what else? Well, we also um, interview a few teachers, um, got their views um, on modularization, and not surprisingly, teachers prefer the route they, work, they were working in at the moment, at that particular moment. So uh, teachers of the modular assessment said that they appreciated the better planning uh, around the exams that the modular approach offered to them. They liked the clarity of the focus of their teaching requirements. They felt that modular assessment contributed to the approach um, to assessment for learning. They 
teachers said that the stress of teaching was reduced because they didn't have to remotivate the students um, at the end to take the, to take the exam. And um, they failed the modular assessments with children who are not motivated otherwise to study and revise throughout the year. One teacher of English admitted though, that um, they didn't have a lot of flexibility um, in order to timetabling time the modular exams in English. This is probably due to the terminal rules in that subject, um, which actually restricts the choice a little bit. Um, the, t the teachers in the linear assessment said that they like having more space and control to deliver the content. They did not find a burden to revisit topics or to remotivate students before the end of year examination. Um, some teachers were concerned about modular students having to revisit material from modules they were taking a long time before. Um, and they, they said actually that they, they would like to mix the new topics with revision um, throughout the course. Um, and some teachers as well believe that in a linear assessment, um, too much depends on performance on a particular day. But they didn't feel like having loads of exams will help them anyway. Um, these are some of uh, views from teachers. Um, so one teacher said, the only thing that would worry me with the modular system, um, students don't look at it again. And so I know a lot of students do that in December of year 10. And if they decide to go into a level and they haven't looked at the material for a year and a half, then that's a disadvantage. I mean, we're actually going to follow up this research uh, with an analysis that would involve looking at the performance in a level of a students that took GCSEs linearly or modularly. And uh, what we want to investigate if it's candidates who's had the the exams in a linear way obtain better grades than those that um, did it in a modular way. Um, this is another comment um, from a teacher. So the fact that it's modular has mean that we can track and tailor um, to the specific needs of the learners. So it strengthens the faculty's approach to um, teaching and learning. Um, to some... Um, to sum up some final issues. So the patterns of entries um, in English and math show that uh, modular specifications work differently in different subjects. In particular, um, they were more successful in maths than in English, where, for example, um, the assessment can interrupt the teaching of themes that run across more than one module. Um, there might be some um, experimentation um, in on the part of the teachers in deciding the points of the course uh, when the students take the examinations. It's possible that different patterns emerge in the coming years, but that's if GCSEs continue to be modular. Um, as the modular schemes mature, and then the teachers and the candidates have a better idea of when uh, it will suit them better to see the exams. Um, the fact that so many people improve um, after taking receipts later in the course may mean that the candidates enter for the examinations before they, they were ready. Um, as I said earlier, it might be the case that some students take the exams earlier just to familiarise themselves with the demands of the, of the course or just as a confidence or motivation kind of uh, building sessions. <clears throat> um, we found that modular routes in English led to lower grades than linear routes once the ability was accounted for. And in maths, candidates following a modular route obtain higher grades. Um, obtaining higher grades in a modular um, course, it doesn't really mean that the standards have dropped, as some people claim. I mean, it could be the case, for example, that um, with setting targets throughout the course, having ongoing feedback, having the opportunity to receipt um, candidates are learning more and then um, obtain higher grades. Um, subject maturity, for example, in English is thought to, to improve performance. So in English, the modular route was uh, found to be a difficult one. And in maths, early assessment was in general an advantage. Um, um, gender makes a difference to grades depending on the subject and on whether the qualification is linear or modular and whether it's taken earlier or later. Um, so it's a quite complicated picture. And um, ongoing feedback was found useful and motivating. Um, students reported that it encouraged them to do better in the next modules. Grade reports were now very helpful and they would prefer more personalised um, uh, feedback and the opportunity of going through their own papers, see where they 
made mistakes and then know, knowing what they have to do to not make them again. Um, just finally, there were some limitations to the research. So the first one was just that two, only two subjects were investigated. We picked English and maths because at the time we started this research, they were among the few subjects that were unitized. And um, because as well of the availability of the schools for the qualitative um, analysis. A second limitation was that factors relating to teacher experience in the assessment route or how the students prepare for the modular exams or linear exams, um, the attitudes to um, different assessments, that can have an impact on the outcomes, but we didn't have any information about that, so we couldn't include it into our models. Um, in the qualitative strand, um, we have um, quite a challenge trying to recruit students and teachers, um, and also we got very low rates very low response rates uh, from students after the June examinations, even after students agreeing to take part at the beginning of the research in all the stages of the research, but after the, the June examinations, they were like, uh, disappear. Um, although we tried to contact them in different ways. Um, for example, for maths, uh, we only got one reply after the June examination just came in this envelope. It was like, I love maths. <laughs> <laughs> that, was the, that was the only one that replied. Um, and uh, finally, um, we can only investigate in the qualitative strand the attitudes of some students and teachers. And obviously, this doesn't reflect um, the views of all. <clears throat> so, as I said, um, we wanted just to give you a flavour of what uh, was in the, the report, which is quite um, a big, thick <laughs> volume. Um, but um, to summarise, the research in one sentence, you could say that one size and off it all. We think that our research shows that there is justification for both assessment routes to coexist and let people pick what's best for them. And um, if you are interested in knowing more about the research, um, we have summarised it in a Research Matters article, or you can have a look at our um, full report, which is in the Cambridge Assessment website. Um, that's everything, and thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Yeah. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.